0: Well, we are studying some of the most overlooked words of Jesus. If you remember, I was telling you about the red letters, a lot of uh, English Bibles are published with the words of Jesus in red, so you can find them easily. Well, you get a lot of red letters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. And then you go through to the very end, and when you get into the book of Revelation, which is a revelation, it is a vision, It's God talking about things that are going to happen uh, depending on your view. But essentially, it finishes the story of the gospel. There's not a gospel without revelation. It's all part of this story. Well, chapters 2 and 3 are all red letters. It turns out that Jesus is speaking to some of the churches at the time. For example, we talked in our last lesson in Revelation chapter 1. John, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus, said... I was on the island of Patmos. I was there, it's a penal colony, basically. I was there because of preaching Jesus, and so the Romans sent him there as, to sort of a get you out of the way and put you on this prison island. He said, and I saw a vision. And Jesus speaks to him and says, write on a scroll what you see, these visions that I'm going to show you, and send it to the seven churches. Well, there are more than seven churches in the world. But he wants to send it to seven churches in the province of Asia, the Roman province of Asia, which I'll show you here in just a second. And he lists them off, and you can see them there on the slide, but he basically is going to talk to these churches. These aren't even the only churches in what's modern-day Turkey. The province of Asia in Roman times is what we would call Turkey today. And so those aren't even the only churches there, but he has specific things to say. We treat that as if and uh, I think rightfully so, that, that this is Jesus speaking down to us, to churches of all time who have similar challenges. And so listening to what Jesus has to say, and these are some of the most blunt things Jesus has to say. Well, here's a map of the ancient world, and I'll just circle the island of Patmos. It's right off the coast of Turkey or Asia Minor in those days. And then on this particular map, just like I think the one that I put on your handout, you have these seven churches. The letters are written to them in the same order that the postman would have gone, from city to city. And so you had the letter to Ephesus, which we talked about in our last lesson. Then you would go north to Smyrna, which we will speak about in this lesson. Then on to Pergamum, 70 miles further north. Then to Thyatira and Sardis And Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea. These are all towns that existed before the gospel, but when the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus for between two and three years, in the years 53 to 57 AD, inside that time period, he spent two years in Ephesus and he sent missionaries out, people that believed the word and were on fire to go share it. And so there became churches in this entire area there are just churches everywhere and it stays strong. This stays a bastion of Christianity through the next 200 years of persecution. So the red letters of Jesus are talking to these churches. These churches were established about 53 to 57, let's say in the middle of the first century, The book of Revelation, in other words, the visions that are coming to John, we're going to date that about 95 A.D., so it's a generation later. It's maybe 40 years after these churches were established. So you see some letters in the New Testament. For example, Paul wrote a letter to the churches in Ephesus called Ephesians. He wrote a letter to the church in Colossae, which is right next door to Laodicea, Called Colossians. And so these are letters to the churches written about 60 AD. Now you see Jesus speaking to the next generation of Christians there in about 95 AD. So the first letter that we're going to talk about is to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna is is an important city. In fact, all of these cities were significant in one way or another. And uh, let's just dive in and look at what he has to say. He doesn't have a lot to say, but it's really packed. So in chapter 2, verse 8, he says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this. By the way, I don't want you to think when he says the church in whatever city, the church in Smyrna, church in Ephesus, that it's a building like we are in right now. It's not. And the church is actually a bunch of little churches, little uh, gatherings of Christians that would meet in homes. They knew each other because they would know each other in the workplace, they'd see each other at, uh, you know, the NFL games and stuff like that, and they knew we're Christians. They never gathered together because they didn't have a building to gather in. Why did they not have a building? Well, the persecution at that time under the Roman emperor at that time, about 95 AD, is a guy named Domitian. Domitian uh, was really high on himself. His title that he preferred to be addressed as in uh, Latin is Dominus at Deus Noster, and our Lord and our God. I mean, these Roman emperors thought that they were divine. And so he was very high on himself, and he was not very high on the Christians because the Christians wouldn't worship him. So this is a time of persecution. So needless to say, it's not like they were going to have a building fund campaign and build a building and say, hey, if you want to arrest the Christians, just come right here because here's where we all are. Well, they wouldn't and they couldn't. And so it's not until the fourth century A.D. I mean, we're at 95. It's not until the 300s that you see Christians being able to build a church building, and all of them come together. So when he says to the church in Ephesus, he's really saying to all the believers in Ephesus, and you are all part of my church, even though 15 of you meet in this house on Sundays and 25 of you meet in that house. So I want you to get a flavor for the idea of the church is the group of believers. Didn't have anything to do with people who met in a certain building. He says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. This is one of the descriptions of Jesus in chapter 1. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be heard at all by the second death." Some of these things are, are the same in every letter. The ending is not identical, but it's a similar format. This is one of only two of the seven churches that has only positive things said about it. No corrections. And what he's saying here is, uh, the first thing I wanna talk to you about on this is the idea of the fact that he says, I know. Switch this a little bit so I can uh, highlight this for you. I know, and what does he know? He says, I recognize that you have afflictions meaning you have hard times and trials, that you are very poor, and yet I know that you're actually rich. He says, because you have been faithful in your witness. He says, you have been faithful in your witness. And so he commends them and he says, you're having a hard time. We talked about poverty. Christians became poor. And the reason they became poor in persecution is because economic persecution was always the way you were first uh, persecuted. They didn't start by rounding people up and putting them in jail. They started by considering you weird, you're different, you worship different gods, and you were basically marginalized economically. So Christians suffered a lot from poverty because you couldn't get a job. Oh, you're a Christian? Can't work here. Uh, You're a Christian. You're not a very good citizen because you won't worship the emperor. So you're not going to get any government contracts. In other words, it was economic persecution for them. Well, I want to show you a little bit about this town. Uh, This town, by the way, Smyrna, of these seven churches is the only one that's still a modern town on the same site. When you go to the ruins at Smyrna, there's literally a city called Izmir in Turkey, literally right around it. The other six, you have the ruins of the ancient city, and there might be a new city very nearby, but literally these ruins are in the middle of a modern city. But it was a big city. It was a magnificent city. So let me just show you a few pictures. This is the marketplace, the Agora, and it is gorgeous. You just see the, the arches there. This was a really a rich city in terms of commercial trade. You can get a view from these uh, ruins of how magnificent it was. Instead of showing you artist renderings, I'd like to show you what's there. Look at those columns and imagine a a top on those columns. Why are they ruins? Earthquakes. That part of the world had a lot of earthquakes and then, of course, it's been 2,000 years. But it's amazing how much of that still stands and how magnificent it is. Here some other pictures of some of the fronts of some of the temples that were in Smyrna. It's a gorgeous facade, and you can tell that back behind there, you know, was basically a, a large temple to one of the gods along one of the main thoroughfares. And there were a lot of major streets. By the way, a lot of these streets are really good technology. A lot of the streets you walk on, even in this time period, 2,000 years ago, have sewers underneath them. I mean, they've got a whole sewer system in the city. The engineering is pretty amazing for a 2,000-year-old city. And then I pointed out last time, you see any potholes in that road? I don't think so. They're pretty impressive place. Here's uh, one of the main streets. You can see the tourists there at Smyrna. You can see the facade of the, of the uh, library, uh, one of the two story, big two-story buildings. And all along here would have been uh, you, would, you would have had shops. I mean, it would have been Gucci, it would have been Ralph Lauren, it would have been a temple, you know, it would have been a bank. I mean, it was just gorgeous uh, places. You can see the architecture still there. You could actually in this one see a little bit of the modern city that surrounds this area. Well, there, the ch- there was a church here for a long time, and I want to tell you just a little bit of story of what comes right after this letter because we know a lot about what happened after 95 AD, because we have some Christians who wrote a lot of letters. I mean, it wasn't just the apostles. Now, these letters are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're just Christians writing letters to other Christians. And some of the church fathers were well-known leaders and preachers and uh, leaders in the church. And so what I'm about to show you is not Inspired, It doesn't come from the Bible. But this is all happening, and you can see that the church in Smyrna, we're going to look at the letter a little bit more in a minute, but I want you to see what happens as it, as it moves on. One of the great leaders at the church in Smyrna in this city was a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp, uh, you can see, born in 69 A.D. So, I mean, he was there when, you know, the... Apostle Paul had just planted the church. He's probably a kid. He was killed for his faith in 155 A.D., and this one has a lot of historical record around it. He was actually a disciple of John. So when John the Apostle is in Ephesus at the end of his life, that's where he's writing this book of Revelation, where God has given him the vision. He goes to Ephesus. He writes it down. Well, while he's still alive, uh, he's a 25-year-old. Uh, young Christian. And he goes and he learns from the Apostle John. In fact, in these early church fathers, there's a direct connection of disciples. John discipled Polycarp, and Polycarp discipled Irenaeus, and Irenaeus discipled someone else. And you see this chain of passing on the Word of God and passing on the Gospels and what Jesus did. So Polycarp was a martyr. And here's the thing. When he was an old man, He was arrested because he was preaching the the word, and he was a leader in the church. He was called a bishop. That word's in the New Testament, but I don't want you to think about a Catholic bishop. I don't want you to think that idea. I want you to think about just a leader in the church. He's an elder that people look up to. He preaches the word, and people say he's wise. He studied under the apostle John. He's a godly man, and he will be a spiritual leader for us. Well, so they arrested him, and they're taking him to his death. And Polycarp, uh, it's a famous story, I don't have time to tell it to you, but it's a famous story written about how he was killed. So they bring him into the, the, uh, the arena, right? And so they've been already, by the time in 155, they're already bringing Christians in there and letting wild animals tear them apart for sport and for people to watch. So they bring him in there, and they don't really want to kill this old man. I mean, this guy's like 80-something, and they're like, this is bad PR. We do not want to kill you. All we want you to do is just worship the emperor. And he's like... I can't do that. He said, Jesus Christ has been my Lord since I was a little boy. I'm not changing now. And they said, look, just do something. Pour out a little libation. Do something because we don't want to kill you, old man. Well, he refuses. And so they decide, they said, listen, we're going to tear you apart with wild animals. He said, bring them on. He said, I'm an old man. I'm ready. I know where I'm going, so bring them on. So, Of course, the Romans are frustrated like, you know, you can't even threaten this old guy. And so he says, well, that's fine. We're going to burn you at the stake. And he says, where's the match? I'll light it. And so the crowd starts to yell, we want you to, uh, to kill this guy. Turns out it's the Jews in the city that are yelling that. And in fact, the record says they went to get the wood and bring it in. Now, I don't tell you this to tell you, oh, well, the Jews were just bad, evil people. I want you to know that by this time you're going to see this in these letters, is in 80 AD, so I'm going back a little bit now, the Jews kicked all the Christians out of the synagogues. In other words, if you were a Jew and you accepted Jesus Christ in the 80s, they said, you can't be a Jew anymore. This is not right and you're out. And so they became persecuted by the Jews. The Jews thought that they were teaching something that was wrong. Well, a little bit later, By 95 AD, when Domitian is there, the Romans start persecuting him too for a different reason. So Christians were persecuted by the Jews and by the Romans. Moving on, a guy named Ignatius, he was also a bishop in the early church. He was born in 50 AD and died in either 108 or 140. He wrote a letter to Polycarp. He also studied under John. And he's a little older, and he wrote a letter to Polycarp. And this is really interesting, because in Jesus' instructions to Ephesus last time, he he told them, hold on to the truth. There are false teachers out there, but you hold on to the truth and persevere. Well, Ignatius is writing a letter to his buddy Polycarp, and he says, Do not let those who appear to be trustworthy, yet who teach strange doctrines, baffle you. Stand firm like an anvil, being struck with a hammer." it is the mark of a great athlete to be bruised yet still conquer. But especially we must, for God's sake, patiently bear all things so that he may also bear with us. There's just a rich literary tradition. Again, this is not in the Bible, it's not inspired, but it really gives you an insight into what was going on in these churches right around this same time. And then finally, uh, Irenaeus, who's born a little bit later, he was born in Smyrna in this city in 130, so he knew Polycarp. He was a young man when Polycarp died, and then he takes over and becomes a leader in the church. He said, "...Polycarp was not only instructed by apostles and conversed with many who had seen Christ, but was also, by apostles in Asia, appointed bishop of the church in Smyrna, always taught the things which he had learned from the apostles." and which the church has handed down and which are true. To these things, all the Asiatic churches, meaning all the churches in Turkey, testify as do all those men who have succeeded Polycarp. I'm only telling you this because it's kind of a sideline. A lot of people say, well, you know what, the New Testament wasn't even all written down and it wasn't collected then. That's true. The letters were circulating, but they weren't bound together. They weren't yet in the Barnes and Noble bookshelf where you could just go buy a Bible But look what they did. They would pass the truth of the apostles' teaching down from generation to generation. And that's how they held on to the truth. Well, back to our our letter to Smyrna. So in 95 AD, this is what Jesus has to say. He said, I know that you've got a lot of trials, and I know your poverty, but you're rich in my eyes. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, and they are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I do want to talk to you about this idea of they're about to suffer. And he says, do not be afraid of what is about to happen to you. There is a very rich theology of suffering in the Christian tradition going all the way back to Jesus. This is not something we talk about a lot today. And to the extent that we don't talk about, it's a real uh, disservice to us. Christians will suffer. Jesus taught that. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome this world. He said, he who perseveres to the end will be saved, meaning you will persevere through difficult things in this world. Some of it will be the natural troubles of cancer, bankruptcy, relational problems, someone dear to you dying. Other things would be persecution. In other words, you don't fit in in the culture. Maybe you live in North Korea and you're a Christian and you're literally your life is at stake. So he's saying you're going to have all kinds of trouble in this world. And that suffering is not pointless. It's very unique to Christianity, the idea that suffering in life has a purpose. Secular humanists look at suffering and say suffering is to be avoided. We want to progress in medicine so that we will never die. I mean, I know that sounds silly, but that is the point, is how can we make sure that we never have pain, never have discomfort? We want our technology to master the world so that weather doesn't hurt us, so that on a hot Oklahoma day, you can go inside and have nice cool air. In other words, suffering discomfort is bad and it should be avoided. Buddhists, for example, think that suffering is the, the pandemic problem of humanity and suffering is an illusion. The only way to overcome suffering is to disconnect and realize nothing is actually real. Other people overcome suffering by conquering other people. In other words, if life is not gonna be that good, I'm gonna make sure mine is better than yours. Every totalitarian government in history has had that happen. In other words, you've got a ruling class and you've got people who are oppressed. Everybody's trying to deal with the problem of suffering. Christianity is the only faith. Jesus is the only person who has ever said, suffering is essential to the formation of your faith. And suffering has a purpose that will make you ready for eternity. A couple of uh, passages here. In Philippians, this is Paul writing to a church in the Greek city of Philippi. Listen to this. This is so counterintuitive. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It's like, oh, it's a privilege now, is it? And that's exactly what he thought. He said, hey, you don't get just to just believe in him. You get to participate in his sufferings. Listen to what he says in chapter three. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so to attain to the resurrection from the dead. What's he teaching? He's teaching the same thing Jesus is teaching, and that is, you will suffer, and I know that, and I have overcome that, and it will shape you into a being who can live with me for eternity. In the book of Acts, In the New Testament. This is the story of the apostles right after the resurrection of Christ. And so they're out preaching all over Jerusalem. And the leaders call them in and they say, listen, you know, you guys, they haven't even gotten near to kicking them out of the synagogues yet. They're just trying to get them to shut up. You know, it's like, yeah, we crucified this guy and we really don't appreciate you saying he's still alive. And they go, well, got to tell the truth. And they said, oh, really? And so they take them in and they say, well, we better not kill them or they'll become martyrs. So what we'll do is we'll just beat the tar out of them. And so they beat the tar out of them. And then they let them go. And listen to what they say. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, this is the ruling council of the Jews, rejoicing Because they had been considered worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, in other words, for Jesus, And then what do they do? Day after day in the temple courts and house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. There is a robust theology, a robust teaching in Christianity that suffering has a purpose. Suffering is inevitable. Everybody in the world knows that. But only Christians realize that, you know what, by embracing suffering, by enduring it with an eye on heaven, with an eye on Christ, God is going to use this to make me more Christ-like. Nobody but Christians understands suffering in that way. And that's why he's saying to them in this letter, he says, I know your afflictions. In other words, I know the troubles you're having, but do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. On the the one hand, that sounds like, well, are you kidding? I am afraid of what I'm about to suffer. And he says, well, don't be. He says, because I am in charge. He says, the devil is going to put some of you in prison and it's going to be to test you. And by the way, I want to make a point here. You're going to hear a lot about Satan and a lot about the devil. Because Satan is is alive in the world, and Satan takes on, he has some agents in the world. The word Satan is a Hebrew word, and it's a title. It's not really a name, it's a title. And it means the adversary, or the accuser. The word devil is a Greek word, and it's diabolos, right? Diabolo, diabolos. And that word literally means the adversary, one who is against you, who is accusing you. Satan is always characterized in the scriptures as the one who is your adversary to accuse you before God, the one who is trying to tear you down. It takes on the person, in this case, of various agents of Satan. So who are the agents of Satan in this situation? Agents of Satan are the Roman government are doing Satan's work in that they're going to find the Christians and they're going to marginalize them or they're going to imprison them. The Jews at that time were going to point out the Christians. In fact, if you look at the Roman letters uh, of the time, there's a lot of history around this of what's happening in the world at this point. It's not just the Book of Revelation. The history from the Roman uh, archives show that there were a lot of Jews turning Christians in. And that is they would say, hey, by the way, I don't know if you realize this or not, but if you go over to Elm Street, 110 Elm Street, you're going to find some Christians meeting there. Why don't you just round them all up and put them in jail? And so you have this adversary. And that's why he says there are some people here that call themselves Jews. He says, but they're actually a synagogue of Satan. He goes on and he talks about... uh, the idea of stop being afraid, and that is really emphatic, by the way, in the scriptures here. It, it is, it's absolutely emphatic. It's like, you absolutely quit being afraid. He said, I want you to believe what I have told you, and that is going to lessen your fear. And the reason is, and this is what you see happening, is our fear, when we come face to face with a culture that disagrees with us or a culture that begins to push and press us or in their case, a culture that's causing them great hardships and afflictions, is fear causes us to compromise the truth. And if you see any thread that runs through all of these letters, Jesus is going to say, you hold on to what's true, because there are a lot of lies out there. There are false Christian teachers. There are Roman emperors that think they're gods and want you to believe that. He said, you hold on to the truth and you persevere with that. Fear makes us compromise And that's why Jesus is saying to them, do not be afraid. Trust me, I have overcome death. Look at what he says in uh, verse 11. He said, whoever overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. In fact, there's a great little passage back in the book of Matthew where Jesus is teaching and he says something really interesting. I don't know if you may have read this and if so, you're probably thinking, what is he talking about? This is what he's talking about. He says this, Matthew, uh, this is in 1028. Do not be afraid. And again, it's emphatic. Do not be afraid of those who can kill your body, but are not able to kill your soul. Instead, if you're going to be afraid, be afraid of the one who is able to destroy your soul and your body in hell. What's he saying? He says, these people can cause you bodily harm, they can cause you difficulties in this life. There is nothing that can keep you from going, they can do nothing to keep you from going to heaven. He said, instead, you should fear God, because God is the one who can destroy your body and your soul. And He, in our case, is not someone to fear, we're literally in His hands. In other words, remember Paul in Romans chapter 8, he said, what can separate us from the love of Christ? This is Romans 8, uh, 32, right at the end. He said, oh, neither height nor depth, no kinds of troubles, not even angels, not demons, not powers, not governments, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's what the New Testament is saying, and that's why Jesus is saying to them, do not be afraid of the suffering that will come your way. God is able to overcome that suffering. Okay. So you're going to start to see a thread. Smyrna is different than Ephesus, but there's still that emphasis on the truth. Well, let's jump into the next one. This is a really interesting uh, church. This is uh, Pergamum. Pergamum, again, is 70 miles north of Smyrna. Pergamum is a very important city. Pergamum uh, has a library, by the way, with 200,000 scrolls in it. I mean, it is a major center. It's where the Roman uh, governor for this province was stationed. Uh, they had, they were really known for their temple, and I'm going to show it to you in a second of to Zeus. Zeus was their patron god, king of the gods in the Roman or in the uh, Greek pantheon. And Zeus's name, I want to tell you this because. I want you to realize that in those days, there were a lot of people competing for the title of God and the title of Lord. You've got Domitian saying, I am your Lord and your master. Well, in the New Testament, who gets that title? Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament, they're constantly saying Jesus is Lord. That's easy for you and me to say in those days. That was treasonous to say. Because when you said Jesus is Lord, no. Domitian is Lord. Well, in the religious world, it was Zeus is Lord. And Zeus' title was Zeus Soter. And that means Zeus the Savior. Zeus is the one who saves us. What did Christians say? Jesus Christ is the one who saves us. They were completely at odds with their culture. They would not worship the Roman emperor. They wouldn't admit admit that he is Lord, certainly wouldn't admit that he's a god. They wouldn't admit that Zeus was their savior. In other words, they were very much at odds, and they're sitting right here in the center of power in Pergamum. And here's what Jesus says. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And remember that imagery. The sharp double-edged sword is always used to refer to the gospel. What do I mean when I say gospel? The message of God to us. What you and I would now call the New Testament. In other words, this is the story. The story is that there's one true God. He sent his only son to die on a cross to cover our sins so that all who believe in him, this is John 3:16. all who believe in him would not be condemned. They would live eternally. They would escape the wrath of God when he is going to pour out his judgment on sin in the world. That's the story of God. That's the message of God. And so that's what the double-edged sword is. He said, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas. We do not know who Antipas is. My faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. I mean, think about that for a minute. Think about if it was Oklahoma City. you got the Chamber of Commerce in Pergamum. And so you've got this beautiful little brochure you're sending out, trying to recruit jobs here. And you go, this is where Satan lives. We are the throne of Satan. Come on and join us. Well, that's what God says. He says, that looks like a prosperous place. That's actually where Satan has his headquarters. He said, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, I'll tell you that story in a minute, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the the sword of my mouth, the word of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To him who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Well, let's talk about Pergamum a little bit, right? At this point, you've got an idea that Jesus does not like this city. He says this is where Satan has his throne. It was a magnificent city. This is the temple of Trajan, and you can uh, tell even from the ruins how big it is, built a little bit later than this letter. Okay, this is this is in the Berlin Museum. And this is the actual stones and facade of the temple of Zeus. They just carried it away, reassembled it, and part of it. This is just the facade. This thing was huge. This thing was about 133 meters around. I mean, it's a big, big temple to Zeus. And Around it, I'm going to show you what those little carvings are. They're called friezes, F-R-I-E-Z-E-S. They're they're carved out of the marble, and they're images. But this was the temple to Zeus, and it sat up on top of a hill in the city, and it was magnificent. I mean, people would come from all around to see this place, to worship Zeus, but just to see the unbelievable uh, nature of this temple. This is one of the ideas of what it means where Satan has his throne, because Zeus is the king of the gods, Zeus is the savior, and so this is Satan saying, this is going to be the real God, and the Christians say, that's not God. In other words, Jesus Christ is our savior. And so what Jesus is saying is, the power of the institutional religion, the Greek religion, is indeed the work of Satan to oppress you. These friezes are just amazing. Uh, again, there are a bunch of them. They're pretty good shape, too. These stories, by the way, all the stories around it, if you know anything about Greek mythology, you've got the Olympian gods. So you've got Zeus and Hades and Mars, and uh, you've got Athena and Dionysus. You've got all these gods. They are Olympian beings. And before them, according to Greek mythology, there were other beings, super beings, called Titans. And if you've seen some of the movies lately, this is is true. This comes from Greek mythology. It's not true. It just comes from Greek mythology. Anyway, so the Olympian gods fought these heroic battles against the Titans and defeated them. And so all of these depict these images of the Olympian gods becoming gods because they killed the Titans. And so it's just, just reeks of mythology and paganism. But that temple was absolutely magnificent. This is the ancient, this is what's the ruins of the ancient amphitheater, or uh, theater, excuse me, it's not an amphitheater. But this theater is huge. And by the way, this is the way they built them. They built them into hillsides, and they liked to build them looking out into the sea. And the reason for that was air conditioning. The breezes off the sea were cooler, but also the actors down there did not have microphones but then you'd get the wind behind them carrying their voice up there. One thing you can't see, this is really cool when you're there, is right uh, here, there is a big temple. And it's a temple to the god Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of partying. He was god of wine. He was the god of hangovers and of aspirin as well. Okay, I made that up. But bottom line, he is the god of partying, and there's literally this temple right by the theater, and they would open it up for concessions, basically. I mean, it's kind of like what we would think of as concessions. You'd go in there, you'd worship a little bit, have an orgy. That was also part of the worship of Dionysus, the total party scene. You'd get your drinks, whatever, and you'd go to the theater. I mean, it is a very pagan environment, but it is a magnificent place in terms of the uh, architecture. This is the temple of Athena. You can see how big this is. You can imagine the columns, but that is a huge temple to the goddess, the Greek goddess Athena. This is a new Roman theater. This is the little theater that the Romans built when they got there. So at the time that this is being written, all this stuff is in Pergamon. So back to our letter. So in this huge city with these unbelievable, a magnificent, but unbelievable pagan altars and temples there, and in the seat of Roman power, that's the context in which Jesus speaks this. So let me tell you who Balaam is. Balaam is a character, you can read about this in Numbers chapter 25. You do that tonight, you might get through three or four verses before you fall asleep. But the book of Numbers in the Old Testament is talking about something that happened when the Israelites came into the promised land. In other words, they left Egypt, that's the book of Exodus, and then they, God gives them the law of Moses and gives them the law, that's Leviticus, and the book of Numbers tells what happens when they come into what's now Israel. Well, one of the kings of one of the neighboring countries whose name was Balak. And Balak, who was king of Moab, he goes to this place, kind of holy man named Balaam and he says, Listen, I want you to go curse the Israelites because they're moving in here, they're taking over Israel, and I hate their guts. And so I want you to curse them. And so Balaam goes, Yeah, I'm I'm not going to curse them. And it's a famous story. And if you read it, I think you'll find it really interesting. But what he does is he says, I can't curse them because they're God's real, but I will tell you how to subvert them. He says, just send in a bunch of really good looking women get them to intermarry with the Moabite women. And trust me, in time, they'll quit worshiping that God and they'll begin to worship the gods of the Moabites. That's exactly what happened. And so the Israelites were tempted by Balaam, by this advice he gave, and they begin to intermarry and they begin to say, well, I'm going to worship God, but I may worship some of these Moabite gods too, because, you know, the wife... She wants to worship the gods. Okay, I'll do it. And they compromise, right? They compromise their faith. And so what Jesus is saying, you have some people kind of like that. You're compromising your faith. Why? Probably because they were afraid of the persecution. What the Nicolaitans were doing, and the Nicolaitans were were a group of people who were doing this. And here's what they were doing. They weren't saying something. They were saying, hey, we're Christians too. And we're not telling you we shouldn't be Christians. Hey, we believe in Jesus Christ as well. But guys, that emperor cult, I mean, there's a temple to the emperor, and you're supposed to go there as your civic duty and make sacrifices and have a big uh, party and a a cookout and that kind of thing. And the Christians wouldn't do it. They wouldn't go make a sacrifice to the emperor as God. And so the Nicolaitans are saying, look, this is a civic thing. It's not really religious. You can go do this emperor worship uh, if you want to. And, oh, did I tell you they're having an orgy over at the Temple of Dionysus? It's not real. It doesn't keep you from going to church on Sunday. You can participate in these civic rituals. Because for the Greeks, they were civic rituals. It was patriotism think about it only on a lot bigger scale for Americans today you would say hey we're all going to go watch some fireworks on July 4th and somebody else says i'm sorry i can't do fireworks go you know, what's your problem you're not very patriotic i mean we wouldn't say it but go with me the point is it was way bigger deal to them you're, wait a minute you're not going to sacrifice to the emperor's health i mean you're not going to you know say a prayer for the president you're not willing to do that what kind of Patriot, are you? What kind of citizen are you? Well, the Christians were thought of as you're not very good citizens. So the Nicolaitans said, Guys, you can do that. You know, Jesus isn't going to have any problem with that. He knows it's just a civic duty. And so Jesus does have a problem with it, doesn't he? He says, You are teaching them the same thing that Balaam taught the Israelites for, and you know what happened to the Israelites. God's judgment came on them for their unfaithfulness. And now you have these false teachers telling you, you can engage in sexual immorality and you can go worship the gods of the culture. That is as true today as it was in 95 AD. There are people who will tell you, you can still worship the gods of this culture and you can still engage in a lot of things and it's okay. You can still be a Christian and do that. Well, that's what the Nicolaitans are saying. And Jesus says, that's not true. He says, and in fact, if you don't repent, and if you don't stand up against them, I will come, and this is interesting, he says, I will come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, he's not saying, he's saying, you need to do this. I realize you're not teaching that, and I realize you guys aren't all doing that, but you tolerate These people teaching and leading people away. He said, I will come to judge them if you don't stand up for the truth. You need to repent. You need to turn around and say, wait a minute. That's not right. That's not how we're going to live our lives. So again, you see this thread of Jesus saying you need to hold on to the truth. You need to hold on to what I have taught you. You need to be faithful to me. The idea of sexual immorality, by the way, whenever you see that in the book of Revelation, it it usually means two things. It usually means they are literally engaging in sexual immorality. I mean, they're going to the orgies, they're being uh, taught pagan pagan morality was not, you know, one man, one woman, uh, sex only in marriage. That is not the morality of Dionysus. That is not the morality of Zeus. That is not the morality of that culture. And so it typically means you're engaging in sexual immorality. But it also is a metaphor for not being faithful spiritually to your spouse. The church, Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. In other words, if you are not faithful to Christ and you're going off and engaging with other gods, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that's called uh, adultery, spiritual adultery, spiritual fornication. In other words, you're unfaithful. And it carries both of those ideas. And we have that same temptation today. There are people who would tell us, you can go uh, have a love affair, if you will, with the gods of this culture. You can have a love affair with money. You can have a love affair with fame. You can have a love affair with, you know, a lot of other things. And Jesus says, no, you're mine and I'm yours and you need to be faithful to me. And so in all of these letters, you're going to see that. You're going to see a lot of the idea of sexual immorality, both literally as well as spiritually, and you're going to see this idea of holding on to the truth. Okay? Well, let me pause for a minute because I feel like I've talked for a long time and pretty quickly, but I want you to get a feel for these cities. I want you to get a feel for the struggle, but I also want us to think about, you know what, that's not very different 1,900 years later than today. So Question? I'm not sure our mic's working here for the question. Were the, Greek gods, the question is Were the Greek gods a product of fallen angels and people mating? And people what? Maybe. Were the Greek gods a product of uh, fallen angels and people mating? Okay, I know you're thinking, wow, now that's a really out there kind of question. <laughs> That is, whoever asked it, that is not a strange question. I'll tell you where that comes from. It's an interesting question. Bottom line, I would say the answer is no, but it's still worth talking about. So back in Genesis chapter six, you get this really, okay, now we're back at the very, very dawn of time, right? And you get this enigmatic little statement. It says, I mean, it's totally enigmatic. By the way, and this isn't an advertisement, but uh, one of the podcasts that I do is called So We Speak. And you can get it on your podcast. You can be SowieSpeak.com. I believe this week on So We Speak's podcast, we talk about Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And I think we talk about this a little bit. But let me give you the short version. And it is, it says, in those days there were giants in the land, the Nephilim and uh, the angels, the sons of God, the angels mated with human women and they had these giants in the land. Nobody actually knows what that means. There are a lot of really interesting conjectures. So that question, good question, is if that really happened and you get these literally demigods, half god, half man, you know, my and by the Greeks thought a lot about this, a lot of their gods, their mom was human and their dad was a god and they were a demigod. Like Hercules, by the way. Hercules was a demigod. Hercules' dad was a god. And his mom was a human, and so he's not exactly a god, but he's a pretty serious dude, right? So that's the question. I don't think so, but it's an interesting conjecture. So good thought. Revelation Uh huh. What does second death mean? Good question. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, what does the second death mean? I'm just going to go back to that slide so that you can see it. This is the letter to the church in Smyrna. And he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, in other words, if you hold to the truth, you just endure the suffering and God forms you, you will not be hurt by the second death. Later in the book of Revelation, like go to chapter 20, you're going to see that the second death is the lake of fire. In other words, in chapter 20, you see this big judgment scene. We've had Armageddon. We've had Satan gets captured. And uh, in other words, God just completely, Jesus comes, and he he just completely defeats Satan. I mean, it's not even a real battle. I mean, it's just literally Jesus comes, and with the sword of his mouth, meaning his word of truth, he completely overcomes and judges Satan. So Satan gets thrown into the lake of fire, death gets thrown into the lake of fire. And basically, hell is that place where all those who are sinners die a second death in a sense. So what he's saying is, if you want to just this isn't exactly accurate but it's close enough. The second death is hell. In other words, if you will persevere with the truth, you will not go to hell. You will not experience the second death. So that's what it's trying to say is, you will live in heaven for eternity. They may kill your body here, or you may die through suffering here, through cancer or strokes or something else here, but the second death, there will be no second death for you. You will live eternally. So that's what that's talking about. At the end of the letter to Pergamum, Mm -hmm. what is the white stone? Good question. Let's go to the end of the letter of Pergamum. What is the white stone? Okay, there are all kinds of interesting theories about this, and they're all good. So let me just give you a few ideas of what that might mean. First of all, what it clearly is implying in the context is to him who overcomes, remember we just saw that to the letter in Smyrna, it says if you overcome, you will not die again. You will live forever with Christ in heaven in the mansion that he has prepared. You will not go to hell. You will not die again. Here he says to him who overcomes, I'll give some hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it. In their culture, they understood this in several different ways. So nobody knows exactly what he means, but here are the images that would have been in their minds. Uh, The white stone with their name written on it, clearly it's a a reward. It's like, this is a good thing. If you overcome, you're going to get the white stone. In the temple of the god Asclepios, the god of uh, healing, medicine, his symbol was a snake. That's why the medical symbol has that serpent uh, around it. It's a, it's a pagan thing. Don't tell the doctors that. It's a pagan thing. But in all seriousness, what they would do is you would get, when you got initiated into the mysteries, in other words, if you were a faith, think of it this way. It's like if you go to church, you went to the church at Asclepius in the temple and you sacrificed and you did all that and they said, hey, we'd like you to be on the finance committee. You know, So you kind of got to be an insider. They'd give you a white stone with a new name written on it. It's your new spiritual name and it was something only you knew, and it was sort of your ticket to the insider status. Well, that could easily be. I mean, everybody knew about the white stone. They would say, oh, I see what he's doing there. He's using that as an example. He says, I'll give you a white stone that gets you into heaven. Another thing that stones were used for is entrance into some of the big uh, guild events. Remember I told you they had trade guilds, and the guilds would have these huge, uh, huge feasts and festivals, and they would sacrifice to the emperor, and they'd sacrifice to the gods. Let me tell you what that's like today. It's, it's like a trade show. And have you ever been to a trade show for whatever industry you're in? You're there. Everybody's got a booth, and all the vendors are there. Kind of like that. And what do you use to get into that? Well, you go register, you pay your money, and you get a little, uh, you get a little badge with your name on it, right? and you get in. They used a white stone to get in. In other words, that's your ticket to get into the association. That's another thing that white stones were used for. So they would say it, they go, oh, I see what you're saying. We get to be into the group. Not everybody gets in, same thing. And then finally, one other thing, and I don't know that that's true in Pergamum, but in general, uh, when you would get a verdict you would get a white stone or you would get a black stone. And by the way, our statement, remember when you say I've been blackballed? That's where that comes from. And the idea is is if you were in a court or something and you got the black stone, you go, great, I'm guilty, or great, I didn't win. You get the white stone, it's like, bonus, I won, you know, I mean, I won my case. So there are a lot of things that these stones are used for because they didn't have tickets and they didn't have electronic tickets on your smartphone, you know, and they would use these stones. So I don't know exactly what that means, but those are some ideas that were in their head so they understood what he was saying. If you overcome, you have an entrance ticket. So that's basically what he's talking about. Good questions. Good questions. Well, let me summarize this just a little bit. This idea of repenting. I want to stop there for just a second. And I know it's not a word we like to use very much, but it's interesting that Jesus is telling... By the way, these letters are written to Christians. These letters are written to the churches. They're not written to people who don't believe. And he's telling Christians to repent. Now, think about that for a minute. We all repent... When we come to Christ, we turn away from our old life and our old gods and goddesses, and we say, I'm going to surrender my life to you. That's what Jesus was preaching, by the way. When Jesus came and preached, he said, repent, because the kingdom of God is here. And so what is he saying? He's saying, you guys are all chasing things that aren't true. You're all going the wrong direction. You're all dead in your sins. I mean, you have sins. You have been in rebellion against God. And we go, yeah, I know. And he says, well, The kingdom of God is here, and I will usher you into the kingdom if you will follow me. Repent meant change your mind, but it came to mean literally change your life, change your direction in life. So we all repent to come to Christ. Only repentant sinners are children of God. Only repentant sinners can come to Christ. And so that's normal. But why is he still saying it now? Augustine who lived about 200 years after this, another one of the church fathers said this. He said, the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's a life of constantly turning back to God. None of us is without sin. The difference is we repent for sin. In other words, we commit sins but we are not committed to sins. The difference between a Christian and non-Christian, I realize this is sounding like a soapbox, but it's a great opportunity to describe this. The difference between a Christian and non-Christian isn't how well you behave. The difference between a Christian and non-Christian isn't whether one of you sins and one of you doesn't. You both sin. It isn't even a matter of how much you sin. The difference is who's paying for your sin. Any sin that is not repented, in other words, if we don't turn and say, Lord, I cannot deal with this sin. I cannot be holy. I can't be perfect. And Jesus Christ says, if you will trust me, give it to me. I'll take care of it on the cross. I'll nail it to the cross. Unrepentant sin is on me. The difference between believers and non-believers is whether or not we have turned and we have, we have uh, basically surrendered ourselves. and Jesus says, I'll take that sin. I know you can't carry it. I know you can't deal with it. And so the idea of Jesus saying to repent is not a bad thing. Our life is always a life of constantly turning back to God. And that's something I think that, that is important for us to know is there's nothing wrong with us turning back to God. We know that we will sin. John, the disciple who wrote this, also said this in 1 John chapter 1. Anybody who says that he is without sin is a liar. He says, but if we are faithful to confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive us our sins. And so Jesus calling that church, those churches to repentance, if Jesus were here today, he would say that same thing to us. He might just pick something else. He might say, you need to repent of your love affair with the gods of the culture. You need to repent of your tolerance of things that are very dangerous and very harmful. You need to repent for your lack of forgiveness. You need to repent for your lack of compassion. He would probably say something to us. And I don't want you to think about that being negative. It's because he loves us enough to tell us, you need to turn back here. And so the Christian life is a life of repentance. And the expectation of Jesus to us is to believe, to live, and to teach the truth, no matter what it costs us. I'd like you to think about that a little bit because I think we're in a similar situation to 95 A.D. We're not in a similar situation because we're, we're not quite suffering economic issues yet. We will. Uh, we, we definitely will. I mean, you can think of any number of ways that the world system might very much try to marginalize Christians, uh, getting doing away with the uh, charitable deduction, uh, making it illegal for Christian colleges to hold to their beliefs. Oh, wait, that's already happening making it illegal for churches to teach certain things because it's hate speech. I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm just saying I want you to see the similarities here. So what Jesus is saying to those churches is probably the same thing he would say to us, and that is, hold on to the truth. He who overcomes will never die again. He who overcomes has a ticket with my picture on it and a place in heaven with me. And that's the encouraging part of this. Next week, I want to talk to two more churches. This next church, particularly Sardis, Thyatira you already know from the book of Acts. And it's an interesting church. It's got some really different issues. And the church in Sardis has a lady there named Jezebel. And I don't know if I would ever want Jesus to say something to me like he says to Jezebel. But we'll talk about that next week. Thanks, guys.